Hello, world. You're listening to the Metro Classic Japanese, bringing you a podcast this time to spill the secrets, or I should say, spill the tea of Japanese tea ceremony. My name is Kyoteko. So, what is tea ceremony? Actually, not many people in Japan would be able to tell you what the big fuss is about making the act of sipping tea into a ceremony. It's like if you live in the States, you know what a brownie is and what it tastes like, but you wouldn't know what a brownie ceremony would be if it ever existed. Why would anyone need a formal ceremony to enjoy brownies? And that's exactly how most people in Japan feel about tea ceremony. Most of us don't really know what it's for and how or why it's appreciated. But tea ceremony has been around for at least 500 years. There's gotta be something extraordinarily fun about it to withstand the test of time. So, today, let me clarify the point of tea ceremony from a few different perspectives and also how it influences Japanese people's cultural values still now without them even knowing it. So, first of all, let's point out the obvious here. Like many other traditional martial arts or art forms in Japan, tea ceremony is a cultural representation of Japan. Matcha is served in tea ceremony. Matcha is a very thick form of green tea, and yes, when you take a sip, you do feel like you are drinking Japanese culture off of a bowl. I don't know why, but when you taste something that thick and undiluted, you taste culture. Like when you have espresso, it feels like you're tasting Italy. When you have those 70% or 80% cacao chocolate, it feels like you are having a taste of Africa. When you have a thick, gooey brownie, it feels like you're tasting America. At least I do, and I love brownies. The matcha is actually not the most significant part of tea ceremony. It's integral because otherwise it wouldn't be called tea ceremony, but the role matcha plays in the experience is just a fraction of the whole. When you participate in tea ceremony for the first time, you'll be busy trying to figure out what in the world is going on. But when you take an objective view, you'll start to notice things that are just so Japan. Now, tea ceremony is not really a ceremony or party. It's more of a type of performance art. It can never be performed again in the exact same way, just like musicals or operas. If I dare to oversimplify tea ceremony for the sake of understanding the basic point of it, I think it's best to call it the art of throwing a Zen tea party. You do everything you can to make the one bowl of tea you serve to your guest an enjoyable one. And just like how musicals and operas are made up of several different art forms combined together, like acting, singing, music composition, stage setting, and costume design, tea ceremony also consists of several different elements. They all contribute to making that one occasion, that one day, a one and only experience. So, what are those elements of tea ceremony? I can name three biggies. Important element number one is the utensils and props the tea master, or in other words, the host of the ceremony, chooses to use for that ceremony. They're like props of a movie or opera, and each one helps to realize the central theme or, or message of that particular tea ceremony the guests are invited to join. I'll post a photo of the items you'll typically see in tea ceremonies on my blog post for this podcast, but again, it's important to know that each item, each prop is chosen by the tea master. You know, if you plan a party, you may think of a special theme for it, like an Alice in Wonderland theme party. Then you would gather props that remind you of the story of Alice in Wonderland. You'd bake cookies that say, eat me or try me. You'd decorate the room with cards and roses and maybe stuffed、uh, cats and bunnies. Same thing with tea ceremony, although it wouldn't be that apparent. There would often be a scroll hung on the wall over an elevated platform you always find in a tea room. 
It's like a staged area for you to decorate, just like a windowsill in uh, Western homes, except there is usually a scroll in place of a window there. These platforms are found in the guest room of almost any traditional Japanese house. Or the next time you stay at a Japanese style hotel, they're called ryokan. If you stay in a tatami room, you will most likely find this uh, stage platform in your room. The scroll on the wall in a tea room would often have a calligraphic uh, Zen Buddhist writing on it. Whatever it says would set the theme and central message of the tea ceremony. For example, if it's a scorching summer day and you come into the tea room as a guest and you see a kanji character written on the scroll that means cool breeze, the tea master probably wants to help you forget the, the heat outdoors. That'd be the theme of the tea ceremony. Other prompts would cohere with that central theme, like the tea bowl may be made of glass instead of soil, and a single tall stem of a seasonal flower may be put into a vase that's probably colored turquoise uh, to create a chill feel. Now also, the tea utensils are hand-picked just for that occasion, and the tea master would try to pick ones that he or she feels are beautiful. And I'll explain it in more details later, but what's important here is that expensive doesn't translate directly to beautiful. Finding beauty in items that are not considered worthy of a hefty price tag yet is what innovates uh, people's values. It's one thing that uh, tea ceremony teaches you. In the early age of Japanese tea, like in the 14th and 15th centuries, decorative Chinese porcelain teawares were typically used because they looked pretty and glamorous. But from around the 16th century, the concept of beauty in tea ceremony shifted greatly towards considering humility, simplicity, and imperfection as what makes things interesting and beautiful. A Buddhist monk who is considered to be the person who brought the concept of Zen into tea ceremony, he's called uh, Juko, pointed out that the moon, when it's partially covered in clouds, was more beautiful than a full moon on a clear night. I fully agree. So tea ceremony from the 16th century on uh, promoted the idea of what is called wabi-sabi, the concept of beauty found in imperfection. So Korean teaware, which were slightly more asymmetrical, and they were hand-shaped and earthy, so they came to be preferred. They are still commonly used in tea ceremony today, by the way. And then soon, in the same century, a particular tea master started uh, making the, the ideal, imperfect, or I should say the, the wabi-sabi perfect teaware called rakuware. The tea master's name was Sen no Rikyu. Rikyu lived during a time when Japan was still ruled by samurais. He was not the person who started tea ceremony, but he was the one who made tea ceremony into a thing in Japan, into a major movement, and established the basis of what it is now. I'd say he is the Snoop Dogg of tea ceremony. If you ask an American person who's not particularly interested in rap, the question, do you know anything about rap? He may answer, um, I know Snoop Dogg. And if you ask a Japanese person who's not particularly interested in tea ceremony the question, do you know anything about tea? He may answer, I know Rikyu. So anyway, Rikyu instructed the first craftsman of the Raku family uh, lineage, he was called Raku Chojiro, to make the ideal teaware in his mind. And out came these super asymmetric, uh, simple in design but complex in shape, thick tea bowls. They look and feel really satisfying when you hold them, uh, kind of like really chunky, gooey, doughy cookies. You know it's going to taste good uh, just by how it looks and feels. Raku teaware contrasted greatly from the fine and delicate Chinese porcelain that were uh, considered valuable for the longest time. 
Riku was all for discovering value and use in places you would normally not look for instead of consuming already existing values. He was a very creative person. The idea of wabi-sabi influenced people outside the world of tea and it influences us Japanese people's aesthetic preferences even today. We tend to see beauty in things that are seasoned well and look handcrafted. Those are the good types of imperfection. Important element number two is the tea room and garden the ceremony takes place in. Tea ceremony can be performed anywhere, uh, even outdoors, but in its most formal form, it's supposed to happen in a tea room made just for tea ceremony. If you visit a park with a Japanese garden in Japan, you'll actually see one of these tea rooms often nestled in an exclusive, densely wooded area, and there's a good reason for this. Tea ceremony is supposed to be a special occasion. It's supposed to make your day extraordinary. So the pathway in the Japanese garden leading up to the tea room will create an illusion where you feel you have roamed into a different world, a world set apart from your daily life. There's a small but really nice museum in the Omotesando area of Tokyo. Uh, that's one station away from Shibuya Station. A museum called Nezu Museum. Nezu Museum is an excellent example of how a Japanese garden and tea room lures you into a world of fantasy. The museum itself is interesting to see, but what's more impressive is that it has a medium-sized Japanese garden which magically makes you feel you have suddenly come into a huge, serene forest, although a few minutes ago you were walking in a posh shopping street of Omotesando. Nezu Museum is a must-go, especially in autumn. I'll post a photo up in the blog to show you why. And I'll give you a list of a few more places with tea rooms I recommend visiting too. Typically, you won't be able to go inside tea rooms unless you make a reservation or sign up for a trial tea ceremony experience. But some of the tea rooms I'll introduce in my blog are made into uh, cafes, so you can enjoy tea ceremony minus the ceremony part. Just have good matcha and Japanese confectionery and hang around for around an hour or so. Now in the more traditional tea rooms, the size of the room changes the experience dramatically. The smaller it is, the more intimate the session will be. The standard size is supposed to be 4.5 tatamis big. That's a square room of 273cm by 273cm, or almost uh, 9 feet by 9 feet. So if you take the ex-Chinese NBA all-star uh, basketball player Yao Ming, who's like 7 feet 6 inches, uh, multiply him by 3 and lay them horizontally side by side, they'll be left with a very narrow breathing space. If they wriggled a lot, uh, they wouldn't be having a very pleasant experience in there. So 4.5 tatamis is an intimate space that's not too small for about 3 well-behaved people of average height. I've seen a 3 tatami wide uh, tea room before. But most tea rooms are far bigger, so don't lose hope in experiencing tea ceremony if you're claustrophobic. Anyway, being in an intimate space is important because one point of tea ceremony is the communication of utmost hospitality through serving one bowl of matcha and the comprehension of that hospitality by the guest. Being physically close to the host allows the guest to notice all the small and subtle acts of kindness and consideration the host makes during the session, which leads us to the next important element of tea ceremony. Important element number three is the procedures and mannerisms of the host and guests, not just in making the bowl of matcha and drinking it, but also every action and decision before and after it. Tea ceremony is like a classical piano recital in a way. Every single move taken during the, the ceremony, like sitting down or extending your hand to receive food or tea, have strict choreographies, like literally every move. 
Apprentices need to memorize the choreographies by heart first. But there's a rational reason for, for example, how there is a specific way the guests need to enter the tea room, there's a certain direction the bowl is supposed to face when the host offers matcha, and there's a reason for that, and so on and so forth. The whole ceremony is carefully thought out to be carried out in the most efficient and beautiful way imaginable. Tea ceremony has a lot in common with Zen, which is not surprising because tea first came into Japan through a Buddhist priest who brought back tea from his visit to China. Tea was like coffee exclusively drunk among Buddhist priests until the 13th century. Uh, it was drunk because it helps you digest, feel calm, and suppress your sexual desires. So it was like the perfect drink for monks. It's like the energy drink for monks. So what tea ceremony has in common with Zen is that the whole practice revolves around reaching a mental height through perfecting your day-to-day -day motions. In Zen temples, uh, monks would wake up at 3 and meditate, uh, eat very small meals and clean the temple, and then meditate some more. They constantly feel hunger. I think I can safely say that their lifestyles are farther away from freedom than the average prisoners. They are technically free, but choose to discipline their lives. And when you keep repeating the same motions like they do every day for months, you start to recognize your, your inner greed. I saw a blog post by a person who tried living in a Zen temple called Eiheiji Temple for a year, and he described the experience uh, really well. So you're constantly hungry, and you feel you're deprived of vitamins, so when you get your pitiful serving of vegetable soup every day, and you see another monk getting one slice of carrot more than you did, you feel jealousy and anger for such a petty thing. And he says that he was really surprised to find out that such greed even existed deep down in his heart. So with time, Zen monks would learn to discipline or uh, let go of these basic greeds, again through repeating the day-to-day -day motions over and over again. By continuing this lifestyle, they manage to become selfless. And when you become selfless, you focus on becoming altruistic, you focus on helping others. And tea ceremony seems to aim for something similar. By going through the strictly choreographed motions again and again, and just focusing on perfecting them, this leads to letting go of your ego, uh, like for example, you're wanting to be perceived as someone unique. Someone who does tea ceremony. How classy am I, right? You let that greed go. Or for example, you're wanting to post a picture of yourself doing tea ceremony on Instagram. You're thinking, how many likes will I get with this? See, you're not serving tea for your guest. That's using guest or the occasion to serve yourself some Instagram likes. You discipline yourself from pursuing these egos by striving to perfect the way you sit or handle the tea utensils and thereby becoming selfless. When you become selfless, you're ready to serve others, namely the guest. Then what the guest receives as a result is pure hospitality. Hospitality with no egos attached. How often will we get that? So the tea ceremony becomes an unforgettable one and only experience. So while the host of the tea ceremony aims to give pure hospitality, what does the guest do? The guest's job is to receive that hospitality in its purest form. There is in fact a very interesting device in the most authentic tea rooms that helps the guest do so. The entrance to the smaller tea rooms are, are really small. It has only half the height of the average door, so you literally need to crawl into it. This type of entrance is called nijiriguchi, which translates to a crawling entrance. 
Mijiriguchi was first installed into a tea room by the tea master Sen no Rikyu. We already know him from directing the crafting of Rakuware. So Rikyu was a philosopher who spread his idea of beauty and sophistication through uh, influencing samurai lords by teaching them his way of tea ceremony. And what he taught them eventually contributed significantly to shaping the common values and virtues of us Japanese people living today, namely the Japanese idea of hospitality. The reason station staff and train attendants in Japan treat tourists courteously is partly thanks to Rikyu for setting standards to hospitality some 500 years ago. So Rikyu was teaching the way of tea to samurai lords during a time when war and battles were commonplace. Samurais had to be fierce almost all the time. They had to sleep with a sword in their hands because they didn't know when they'd get killed, uh, even by their subordinates or family members. So the really small tea rooms Rikyu created were meant to be a place where the guests, uh, the samurai lords, can forget about having to be on their feet to not get stabbed in the back, and forget about who they were, uh, a person in power. Being a person in power is a life-threatening risk even today, right? Uh, presidents and prime ministers need to be manned with bodyguards. It is only by forgetting they are in power that they can start to truly relax. So finally coming back to Nijiriguchi, the half-sized entrance. When a person goes through a Nijiriguchi, he or she inevitably transforms into a kawaii existence. It's one of the humblest state of a human being when uh, he crawls. You know, even if you were a multi-millionaire business owner of a company everybody knows, and you were dressed in a full Armani suit and sunglasses, when you enter the team room through the Nijiriguchi, your butt's gonna wiggle, and if you're over 35 or so, you're gonna be making what I call ojisan noise. Oh my god! Okay. See, he'll be making that noise. The Nijiriguchi forces anyone to be in their humblest state, and therefore forces them to undress their acquired identity, like social status and money. You go back to being yourself, purely you. And the tea master would do his very best to create the most satisfying tea for you. Not because you are his customer or his boss or the ruler of Japan. It's because you are another human being and you are an important guest and there is no other reason. Rikyu thought that it was only through this setup that people could have a heart to heart. The director of the tea museum of Shizuoka Prefecture, uh, Professor Isao Kumakura, points out in his book a very interesting point about the effect of having a nijiriguchi for a tea room. In almost any culture, uh, going through a narrow hole signifies transportation into a different world. For example, in Alice in Wonderland, Alice finds herself in a strange world after crawling into a rabbit hole. And if you watch Ghibli movies, you may recall that falling down a hole is a key moment of many Ghibli stories, for example in My Neighbor Totoro and Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Also during the time Rikyu was around, stages for stage performances had similar small entrances. The actors would crawl onto the stage from backstage. You can still see this type of entrance on no theater stages, by the way. Um, the reason is believed to be that it helps the actors feel they have entered a fictional world. So Nijiriguchi helps the guests feel like they have left the world behind and come into a tea room where they can forget about work and their problems and purely enjoy spending time there in the tea room. The guests and the tea master would be able to have a meaningful conversation which is often hard to have especially in Japan where the social norm is to observe hierarchy and to keep a friendly distance with people who are not family or not yet friends. 
It probably feels really enlightening to experience that moment of connecting with your counterpart's heart. I'd like to experience that one day. So lastly, why do people learn tea ceremony? I think I have an answer to this. There was a 20th century Japanese philosopher by the name of Muneoshi Yanagi. He was the pioneer and leader of a so-called uh, folk handicraft movement, of which aim was to promote the value and beauty of handcrafted everyday necessities like kitchenware and food utensils in Japan. Looking at many of his writings, it seems like he tried to explain that tea ceremony is the application of your idea of beauty in your everyday life. So you expose yourself to the beautiful tea utensils, tea rooms, and tea mannerisms, and at first you struggle to even understand what's going on and you're not sure what and how to enjoy anything. But you eventually learn to be able to tell the value in the design of everything you see and the subtle motions tea masters make. And you learn to have meaningful time with the people in the tea room. You eventually internalize all these and become able to do them from gut feeling. Then you will naturally start applying your tea room norm into your daily life. Not only will you keep your house clean, but you'll know how to decorate your room in a simple yet interesting way. You'll think about how your table should be set, how your bed should be made, what your Instagram photos uh, should look like, how you should talk to others, how you should walk, how you should lift a cup of coffee. You have your own standard of beauty and therefore everything you do will carry a philosophy. Your philosophy of what's beautiful. If everything you do feels beautiful, imagine what life will be like. And here's a shout out to a fellow Japanese culture podcast called Japan Experts. They have an interview episode on Japanese tea and it covers more details on how to enjoy different forms of tea, not just tea ceremony. Check it out if you're interested. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope I spilled enough tea about tea ceremony. I'm not a hardcore practitioner of tea per se. I'm interested in all types of Japanese cultural representations. But to see what's fun about them requires a lot of background knowledge. I grew up in Japan, but it's only after I went to see those cultural representations myself, interviewed uh, specialists and read many books about them that I could really start to understand why Japan has decided to keep them. It's hard to understand and on top of that, it's hard to explain. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'd like to explain these in a way anyone can comprehend. Because if it's not communicated well, even if you have good stuff, it's good as non-existent from the, the eyes of other people. So please allow me to continue doing what I do by keeping myself connected with you. Please subscribe to this podcast, bookmark my blog uh, metroclassicjapanese.net, or follow the Metro Classic Japanese on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you for listening. それではまたお会いしましょう。